so we have been using it, of course, to um, track our characters for... Th oh my god, cat. Dangerous Seaplane in New York City. I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 226 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about playing and running pulp adventures. But first the rogue traders serve an eviction notice in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, the melee mage gets up close and personal in the character creation forge. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by D&D Beyond. D&D Beyond is the official digital toolset and game companion for Dungeons & Dragons. You can use it to build characters, track campaigns, run adventures, and do so much more, like check out the new Artificer from Eberron, Rising from the Last War. There is also lots of awesome free content, like the D&D Basic Rules, articles from writers like James J. Heck, and videos from Todd Kenrick. The team's always updating the site with new features. I have been checking out the uh, Encounter Builder, which is currently in beta. And uh, it seems to do a pretty decent job of telling me that I'm definitely going to kill my party. Uh-huh. <laughs> Fair warning, those multipliers are real. <laughs> we have been using it, of course, to track our characters for the uh, second round of uh, of our Eberron campaign, our Morning Glory 2 campaign. So it has been super helpful for that. And I am now, as we are looking down, um, finishing up play of that and starting Dark Sun, very excited to convert my character over um, with all of the Dark Sun goodies and lots of magic items and all the stuff that we have there, D&D uh, Beyond will make all of that much easier. Yeah, the only thing I wish we had already done was have D&D Beyond the last time we were playing like a year and a half ago so I could just remember how many hit points I had rather than digging up an old sheet. I, I have eight hit points. <laughs> <laughs> I have seven hit dice remaining. <laughs> I don't know why we're in such a bad situation, but I'm sure we deserved it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If that sounds great to you, go check it out at dndbeyond.com. So just a reminder, we've taken a couple weeks off, but uh, next week, December 4th, Wednesday, 7 p.m. Eastern, will be the return of Stream of Blades, our Band of Blades actual play uh, streaming show on twitch.tv slash don't split the podcast uh this should be like probably the last three episodes but you know uh it's band of blades so it could always end up getting cut short <laughs> um, as we all die it, horribly yeah we're, we're definitely in like the third act of our campaign here as we're uh running out of time to get to sky dagger and make preparations uh as well as now there is this whole thing about nix and the ponyar members of the legion um perhaps having wavering loyalties or dual loyalties. So we're going to have to get to the bottom of all of that stuff uh, very quickly. Yeah. So find out as we find out by watching live, because we have absolutely no idea what's going to happen because it depends on how Rudy rolls. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a big part of it. <laughs> all right. Check it out at twitch.tv slash don't split the podcast. Also, this is probably a good time to say that I am like, very very sick so if my voice sounds painful uh i apologize Ooh, i'm hungover so hey well that's basically the same thing <laughs> this episode's a wash all right so speaking of 
Very, very sick. Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game, played using Dark Heresy's 2nd edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the Deathworld Iblis Prime, in the frontier city of Meridian, the Rogue Traders have set out to establish a colony in the name of the Holy Throne of Terra, and Prophet. We actually haven't done a terrible job of it. I mean, aside from the massive amounts of corruption we've suffered at the hands of Eldar spirits, I guess. Yeah, I mean, for once, you have a clear path to profitability <laughs> at, at a small cost of your soul, <laughs> but sure. I mean, I wasn't getting any return on my soul, so. <laughs> well, so the Eldar Spirit Seer has finished the siphoning ritual, which uh, has siphoned all of those Eldar souls out of the planet, um, which should cause the living jungle to calm down a little bit. Uh, as well as you have completed the full-on corruption of Doc's soul, um, he has now made a bargain with a uh, with the emissary of the Chaos God Zinch. So that definitely won't come to bite the party in the butt later. Uh, no, not at all. And you have like one last thing that you need to do to kind of close out this business on Meridian, right? Before you can kind of turn it over to just a successful and profitable mining operation, which is. You need to get the Eldar Exodite tribes out of the planet and into the webway. Um, and in the process, uh, the Spirit Seer has asked that you also return a whole bunch of Wraithbone to them, um, which you have harvested and collected out of the barrows. Yeah, but we've only got like a vague idea of where to actually go to find these Exodites. Uh, so, you know, we'll take all that Wraithbone, load it into the cargo pods of the gun cutter. Uh, and set off to find, well, we've got one bit of information to try to locate them. Uh, we've been told to find the whispering tree that faces sunset. This is very Three Amigos. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it, let's just say it's a good thing you've got the hostile negotiator to fly you around because it would have been a long walk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but eventually you're able to follow these kind of vague directions, these sort of more... I don't know, impressionistic rather than um, intentional kind of directions. But you are able to finally uh, find the Exodite encampment that you're looking for. Um, now, you've taken the gun cutter. Uh, that means you've got limited number of uh, cargo space and a limited amount of seats. Um, and you have decided to only come as the rogue traders yourselves. Uh, you are not bringing along any extras. Uh, with the goal of not accidentally starting a war, getting attacked, you know, uh, dragging this out any longer than you need to. Yeah, if we're going to start a war, we'd prefer to do that on purpose and mm -hmm. by surprise. Right. <laughs> we'd prefer they not know we're starting a war. <laughs> uh, but we do decide to bring along the Grinix. Is that what it's called? A Grinix? Yep. Uh, the psychic Eldar house cat that we found in the Barrows, uh, which we have named, well, Trank has not named this strange feral creature. Doc? Did Doc name it? Doc named it. Okay. Named it Romulus, which is, uh -huh. I don't know, auspicious, I guess, because he did kill his brother. <laughs> <laughs> so a single Exodite with no armor and clad in simple heavy robes against the cold of the Cloud Barons greets us outside. And we parlay briefly. Um, basically, we bribe them by giving them a bunch of Wraithbone. And asking them to leave the planet. Yeah, I mean, their hand is sort of forced here. Um, and when you, you know, you're like outside of their encampment, which is like 
this simple wooden palisade, right? Like you see this Eldar who's not wearing armor is just wearing robes. Like it's the simplest and like least decorated, least exciting, like most austere you've ever seen an Eldar. Um, You've ever even heard of an Eldar being. And like this, this Eldar, she just has this, like this sense of like, they know this is coming. She has been sent out here to agree to this. Mm -hmm. Um, and like she hates it like she hates you like there's contempt in her eyes her voice is like sorrowful and like you just you're literally giving an eviction notice right and it's mm-hmm. like she doesn't necessarily blame you but she doesn't just respect you for having to do this either you know like it's it's a difficult kind of thing for them you're basically evicting an entire culture you know they're not mad they're just disappointed in us no they're mad <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're mad at a lot of things, uh, you included, but like, <laughs> look, if, if, uh, the Imperium were not actually, um, theocratic fascists, then we would feel bad about this. But, uh, the Imperium is a terrible society and no one should emulate it. We're, we're fine with this because now, now we, now we get to get stuff. You're also doing it on behalf of the, like, the craft world Eldar. Right. right? So I that mean, they can better fight a Tyranid high fleet, which, you right. know, helps all of us. Yeah. I mean, however you need to justify it to yourself, it's clear that, um, this, this poor Exodite will not be seeing the big picture. Um, it certainly won't make you feel any better about it. Well, I, I don't know. At the end of this quest, does she give us some rewards? Uh, yeah, she, uh, <laughs> you might say a reward, <laughs> maybe, maybe more of a rewarding. <laughs> <laughs> Because she warns you, you may someday find fate turns upon you, and you are forced from your ancestral home. God damn it. An auspicious warning. Those are the worst. Yeah, from a from a deeply devout Eldar. Wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm sure that also will not come back to bite us. Not at all. <laughs> um, so that is actually where we ended our uh, or where we paused our Rogue Trader game. Like, that's where Dynasty Unwarranted ends. So, like, programming note, I think next week we'll do a little bit of, like, summary and, and kind of talk a little bit about the campaign. Um, and then pretty soon we'll be starting recapping Morning Glory 2, which is our return to Eberron. Yeah, just in time for the release of the book. It's almost like that was planned. Hmm. If it was planned by somebody, it was planned by Wizards of the Coast, not us. <laughs> yes, they were like, oh, hey, they're starting another game. We should release a book for them. Yeah. We should we should, we should release that book after they've played the game. <laughs> Maybe like before the last session, ideally, like one one session early. So you can you can play your final forms uh-huh. in the finale. I think that's ideal. Uh, all right, so we won't be finding out what happens next week cuz we have no idea. But we'll have a cool discussion about it. All right, so this week we are talking about pulp adventures. Yeah, we reviewed Eberron, uh, Rising from the Last War, last week, and that campaign setting is often billed as a combination of pulp action and noir intrigue, which those terms are often confused because they don't necessarily mean anything specific, and pulp is a medium and not a genre, so... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, I think what pulp really means as a genre is cheap, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. Schlocky. Yeah. I mean, like, it'd be easier if people just word. said action and intrigue, right? Rather than like throwing in words for pedants to fight over. <laughs> right. But so a little history here. Yeah. Like 
Shane's right. Pulp novels were cheap and mass produced, usually from like the, the 30s and the 40s. They featured really simple plots and larger than life characters who got into wild adventures. Uh, does that sound like, I don't know, something that maybe tabletop games might learn something from? <laughs> yeah. The, the only difference is like now tabletop games are produced on nice paper. Right. <laughs> I <laughs> mean, sometimes. Right. I mean, they're literally named for being printed on such cheap paper stock that it was like pulp. Right. Like you could not get these books wet or they would literally dissolve. So in terms of genre, though, like you could print anything on this. It was something, it was often like sci-fi or westerns, um, street detective stories. Uh, but sometimes it was superheroes or romance novels. A lot of these often blurred the lines, especially in the early days. Uh, you have characters like uh, Doc Savage, who was, you know, the man of bronze. He he is ensconced at the 86th floor of the Empire State Building, and he hangs out with the five greatest minds in the world. Uh, I, actually, I actually had a lot of Doc Savage novels, and they are not difficult reading. <laughs> oh. <laughs> By any means. <laughs> great yeah uh or things like the phantom right which is uh the the purple suited guy with the mask who like was an early batman progenitor kind of sorta who oh. would like you know go to the south seas and fight pirates and i don't know why he was fighting pirates when he was was like a superhero who also hung out in new york city but whatever i mean if you have a chance to fight pirates you should you go fight pirates i don't even really understand the question <laughs> It's the 1930s in New York. <laughs> should I should I hang out in Tahiti for a bit? Yeah, yes. So the the idea behind these is that they were designed to be page turners. That's why they're so over the top. Because the goal was for readers to finish them and buy another. Uh, which isn't really that unlike how gaming groups operate in their stories, is it? Right. Uh, please just insert your next dime and I will give you another adventurous tale. Exactly. <laughs> please insert pizza. I will tell you a story. Uh, so pulp, pulp adventures. I mean, most games these days aren't solely pulp, but you can learn a lot from the kinds of stories that were popular in the 30s and 40s. Um, and something, some themes that you can bring into your game. Uh, the first one I think is probably the most important is pulp stories feature competent heroes. Pulp heroes accomplish things. They perform great deeds. They are called upon in times of trouble. Uh, they save the world every single week or, you know, every month or whatever, depending on their publishing schedule. And, like, they're probably really famous people. If you think about it, like, everybody knows who Doc Savage is. Everybody knows, um, like, of the Phantom, even though they don't necessarily know his his secret identity. Everyone knows Flash Gordon, right? He's yeah. He's saving the universe. Yeah, it's either they're world famous or they're like famous for their thing, mm -hmm. right? Because there's also like the like kind of more like the noir genre. Like everybody knows that private eye, right? Like yeah, you have a reputation. Yeah, exactly. Like that's important to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean Indian Jones, right? Like everybody is like, oh, Doctor Jones. Like <laughs> his reputation precedes him. Everybody right. knows Indiana Jones, right? Uh, and so when you need a thing found, you call Indiana Jones because you know that he doesn't actually care about tenure. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, like they are world famous, but people like them. Like the public usually likes them or thinks they're cool or that they're heroes, except, of course, for your arch nemesis, who probably also is like world famous and like people hate them, but they're protected by the, the law or 
a secret lair or like a space laser or whatever. Like old Superman and Lex Luthor stories are per, are quite pulpy, and like mm-hmm. everybody knows that Lex Luthor is a, an evil billionaire. <laughs> it's like basically on his business card, evil billionaire. So then another big theme here is that the heroes are rewarded for having big ideas and taking big risks, right? It's over the top. So they should be leaping from great heights or running towards danger or kicking in doors and just being ready to handle what's on the other side. Not like carefully planning and executing and like, it's not about like razor sharp precision. It's about just like bravado carrying the day. Right. And like maybe the reason that you're so competent is you have razor sharp precision, right? Like Batman, Batman never misses with a Batarang, but you kind of hand wave him being very good at it. He just, he just does it. Yeah. And like, he doesn't necessarily know that he needs that Batarang. He just grabs it when he needs it. Right. From where? I don't know. How do you fit so much stuff in that utility belt? It doesn't matter. (laughs) Uh, Now, this doesn't mean that the heroes are always going to succeed. But they are good at what they do. So the bad guy might get away. A friend of theirs might die in their arms and they have a touching moment. But you don't have pulp heroes who are like Pratt falling or, you know, screwing up and a potion explodes in their face or they're, you know, falling on their faces because they're slipping on ball bearings, except very occasionally as as a humor element, specifically because they are usually so competent. Yeah, it's that's like always a behind closed doors mechanic for them, right? It's never like a public problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like you know, Indy hates snakes, and sometimes he gets thrown off by it, but it actually comes back, and it really matters later in the story. So, one thing I think you should do uh, in a game is look at your game system if you want to play a pulp adventure, and try to figure out does the system that you are thinking about using encourage or allow heroes to succeed more than they fail like call of cthulhu is built for more noir and uh like occult stories it's probably not a system that's great for a pulp adventure because almost always your characters are going to fail at the thing they're trying to do yeah and then you also want to look at how it treats risk-taking right like games like um like rogue trader for example right like you should be cavalier heroes, but in a lot of ways, like it actually punishes risk taking mm-hmm. a lot. Um, so you want games that like the rewards greatly outweigh the risk. Yeah, I think the the pitch for that game initially started as swashbuckling in space, but with the system, you quickly realize that if you don't have the right armor and you don't have a plan, and you take a foolish risk, you're immediately going to get shot in the face and die. <laughs> Yeah, like the the flip side of that would be like Blades in the Dark, which genuinely is like, no, just barge in the door. It doesn't matter. You'll figure it out on the other side. You'll be fine. Yeah, engagement rolls are like the most pulpy mechanic I've heard of in a very long time. Uh, And then when you're running a pulp game, just abide by the rule of cool. Like lean really hard into it and worry much, much less about verisimilitude than you would in other types of games. Like it really doesn't matter why this thing is happening. Uh, unless players want to explore that as as some sort of theme. Like, just make a cool thing happen. So another hallmark of Pulp is morality tends to be black and white. Um, you have good, good guys. You have bad, bad guys. You have friends who work for the good guys and look out for them. You have, you know, henchmen for the bad guys who do their bidding. And there's not really any question about, like whether or not you should do the right thing, right? Like you're a hero, so you're going to save the person. 
Yeah, and it doesn't really matter who that person is, if they're famous or, or just, you know, a, a friend's long-lost nephew or whatever. Like, you go do the thing. And that, that does a great job of pushing the game forward because you, you don't sort of get stuck on, like, I don't know, what's our motivation here? Your motivation is that you're the good guys. Go Go do the good thing. Right. So if, like, a party member or a friendly NPC does end up betraying the party, again, it's meaningful because it's rare. It doesn't happen very often. So it'll be a major plot point. Uh, and probably no one is prepared for it, either um, like mechanically or like, as a as a character. So it'll be a shock and a surprise if it happens. You also don't have to worry about generally like killing the nameless goons, right? Like you don't generally get held accountable for collateral damage in these sorts of novels. So you just do the right thing and, uh, you know, the like let the black and white morality sort out the details. Yeah, it kind of works out, right? Like you, you may not even be shooting anybody. You just punch them and then like they're unconscious. But you don't need to worry about, oh, they fell down the stairs and did they break their neck? Like they fell down the stairs and they're they're just out of it. And like they go to the hospital and get patched up just like in a Batman comic. Right. And, you know, if if the lab explodes... And that was our goal. And like we rush out at the last minute. Don't worry about all the people in the tenements nearby. <laughs> like the game shouldn't really matter. Shouldn't right. really delve into like all the terrible consequences of that. Yeah. Heroes don't really live with regrets uh, unless they have that like one character defining regret. Um, and then that probably drives their whole ethos. Right. Mm hmm. So combined with heroic competence, this black and white morality means that. You get in a situation actually where you can have PCs who aren't particularly bright and they end up being much less of a liability than in some other genres like, you know, investigation or mystery. If you just do the right thing for the right reasons, that's probably enough to move you through the story in the direction that it's supposed to go. Uh, another theme is that there is almost always a mystery. And now I don't mean there this is a mystery game or a mystery story. I mean, there is a single mystery in the story. You know, how is the mad scientist controlling all of these thralls? We, we don't know. We need to figure that out so we can free these people. Right. Yeah. You're trying to figure out, like, who is the financier backing the rebels? We just need to know that information. That's the only question that we're asking. Right. If it is a whodunit, then, okay, great. Who Who was the one who killed the senator? We'll find them, and then we'll beat them up. <laughs> right. Yeah, and then, and then we'll the take answer. them to jail. <laughs> we just need or to like, know who to beat up. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, Indiana Jones, like. Raiders of the Lost Ark is is very pulpy, and the only real mystery is where is the Ark of the Covenant? Well, <laughs> it's kind of not even really that good of a mystery. <laughs> it would have been better just leaving it where it is, Indy. <laughs> it's fine. But he can't, right? That's his, well, I guess it's not a regret. It's his one defining flaw. He's just too curious. Mm-hmm. So these stories are not typically whodunits, although, you know, you can do a pulpy whodunit. But solving the mystery or attempting to solve the mystery propels the adventure forward and motivates the party. You know, we want to know the answer to this. I guess we have to go to Cairo. Right. You should be able to, like, follow relatively obvious clues. Like, oh, in their room, they left a brochure for Cairo. Right. <laughs> cool we'll be on the next flight <laughs> like like they should be following along like in a way that isn't taxing to the reader um everyone should know what's going to happen next mm -hmm. and yeah the fun is like the anticipation of like oh okay we're gonna go to cairo that means like the the next few sessions are in cairo awesome right speaking of which uh pulp stories 
involve the sense of venturing out into the unknown. Uh, part of that might be far-flung destinations. Uh, of course, you know, it depends on where your game is based, whether Cairo is far-flung. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, but going to a different place far away from where you were typically based. And you will do things like, you know, confronting the unknown doesn't only mean uh, location. It can be, you know, you're confronting strange magics or an advanced technology, or maybe you're like meeting aliens or finding a hidden civilization at the center of the world. Mm -hmm. You take characters out of the mundane world and throw them into these unfamiliar, fantastical places, right? Like, or these... um, alien situations at least right where they're out of their comfort zone and the character and the reader or like the player are both sort of experiencing that together yeah i mean sometimes you're literally thrown into an unfamiliar situation because that's a great way to get things to happen in pulp stories is an explosion throws you somewhere or Mm -hmm. someone picks you up and physically throws you (laughs) yeah like out of the helicopter right (laughs) what's at the bottom i don't know i guess we'll find out (laughs) exactly (laughs) So the same actually goes for players. Players are should be exploring unknown situations or or themes. You know, what is a battle zeppelin? I don't know, but it looks super cool. Let's get on it. Uh, there's a talking gorilla. All right, uh, I guess some sort of super scientist put together uh, an uplift program, and now there's a gorilla who's talking. That's the the pilot. <laughs> yeah, or you have like spaceships you build in your backyard, or like you know, deep sea submersibles you build in your backyard or whatever, you know, to go to explore places that otherwise are inaccessible. Yeah. Remember that pulp stories, like they were cheap stories, but they drew on the literature that was available at the time. So, you know, Jules Verne type technology shows up in a lot of these pulp stories and Jules Verne never really explained like how the, the Nautilus worked, right? It just, it just was a submarine that worked fine. Right. Uh, or Ray Bradbury has uh, what Rocket Summer, right? Like people are building spaceships in their backyards and then they are like launching to Mars. Like that makes absolutely no sense from a scientific perspective. <laughs> but it is super cool that you're building a rocket ship in your backyard. Right. So the other, the, I think the last theme then is the end. Uh, is never really the end, right? Like, you finish a single story with a task accomplished and some loose ends tied up, um, but then you can stop there and it's satisfying. Or the author writes the next one, right? And and tugs on one of those loose ends, and now you continue, there's more threads. Um, you keep, like, pulling forward, right? Like, characters from three episodes ago show back up. It, it, it keeps like weaving a, a longer and longer kind of timeline. But at any point you can jump off and feel like I finished the book. This was satisfying. Yeah. I mean, obviously that was so that you could continue to write a story every week or month using the same characters, but it, it works great for tabletop games. Like you don't have to kill off your villain at the end. You can throw them in jail or, you know, they're stuck in the phantom zone or buried beneath the earth or whatever. And that's a really satisfying conclusion. It actually might be more satisfying than killing them, but you can always later bring them back because they've escaped. Just make sure that you are answering the questions that the players had. Like don't, don't leave so many loose ends that people are like, but uh, we were trying to discover the answer to this one mystery and we didn't actually get it. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Uh, yeah, that's a, that's important. Is there are no like overarching mysteries, right? Like the, those those types of questions get answered in a single book. Mm-hmm. Um, they're introduced at the beginning and answered at the end. You don't introduce a question that you'll answer three books later the way like you know George R. R. Martin does in some like fantasy epic. Right. Answer the question uh, that is presented in the second half of the title of your pulp novel. <laughs> right. Right. The adventuring party and. The mystery of the disappearing sands. Okay. Bingo. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you are using pulp themes in your games, first off, make sure that you are not sweating the details. Do not worry about how the Zeppelin of this size is carrying this many troops and all of their gear. Um, it has the latest hover rotor technology or whatever. It, it, it literally doesn't matter. Or like, Oh, I was wrong. The Zeppelin is actually twice as big as that. That's way cooler, right? Right. Like, nobody cares about mass-to-volume ratio. Yeah, and players, like, don't don't be pedants in a pulp game. Uh, if they're going to be things like clones in the 1930s or spaceships and they have gravity on them, like, who cares about gravity plate, plating? Uh, if you're going to take a trip to the moon because that's where, like, the next clue is, great, you don't have to worry if it was poorly planned and if you're all going to die in vacuum. Yeah, you just put a helmet on. Yeah, you'll be fine. So this means like you have to be a fan of your players. If they come up with it, give them a way for it to happen and just allow everybody to suspend disbelief. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. I remember in Doc Savage books, um, they're the good guys, right? Um, and they like respect human life. And, and so, but they're always like in these like seaplanes shooting at other planes with like machine guns. Uh, so, so the way that, uh, the, the author sort of explained this away, it was like, oh, they develop mercy bullets. Um, they explode just beneath the skin and release a fast acting anesthetic. So in your head, like these guys are getting shot with machine guns and then like, uh, and falling to the ground, but don't worry. They're not dead. They're not dead. They're fine. Wait, how would anesthesia help though? It doesn't <laughs> make like it. How, do, how does, how does a pain. hollow bullet one get fired and two explode just beneath someone's skin <laughs> <laughs> but you don't die from the pain <laughs> it's like you don't you don't no, 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 like out. no like they don't puncture it just it knocks them out they're knockout bullets oh <laughs> oh okay right doesn't make any sense but you know like 12 year old me was like oh cool yeah they don't kill people yeah of course <laughs> that makes sense yeah Likewise, when you're following Indiana Jones in his little red dot as his plane is uh, heading to the next location, who's paying for that? I, the university, I assume, or the museum that, that he's going to return to. But he never to. works. I know. <laughs> he teaches he's, that one class. He's always on sabbatical. Oh, the, the point here is that it does not matter. It right. does not matter how it's getting paid for. Because it's more important <laughs> to keep things moving. <laughs> like the the whole point is that you are gallivanting around being active participants in the story. You don't want to let the party sit in one place too long. Mm-hmm. Right, either physically or mentally, right? Things are always going to be happening. They're not always in control of it. They don't always have a ton of time to plan. The villain will escape through a secret entrance and they need to follow them. Like that's what's happening right now. Thugs are going to kick in the door and start shooting. You better start ducking. Yeah, like the uh, proverbial client walks in with a job, you know, like of all the gin joints in all the world, you know, like things happen to the adventurers to keep 
keep them engaged. Right. And if you don't know why a thing is happening in the moment, that's totally fine. Why did the thugs burst in? I don't know. Deal with this cool, fun battle that you're having. And then figure it out later who sent them. Just like a pulp author who's writing every week. Like, that's the thing, though, is like, the villain could always just attack them at their base, mm-hmm. right? Whether yeah, that's yeah, you their know where office. they live. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, and it never gets explained why they don't just do that, and you never should. Sometimes thugs will burst in, and you'll have to like fix the door, but you don't like relocate your office. <laughs> this is this is our office, right? Like, no, this is where people know to find me. I'll be fine. <laughs> right? How would clients know where to walk in with a job? Right. So pulp games require both GMs and players to just roll with it. So party, if you feel like you're getting a little bit railroaded, it's probably just to get you to that final confrontation on Skull Island. You want to be there. Yeah, and then like the flip side for the GM, right, is like if your players have this cockamamie scheme or ridiculous idea that they're going to like use jetpacks in 1955 uh, and make an aerial assault on Skull Island, like sure, whatever, it happens. Great, um, they want to play the Rocketeer. Right, like, just <laughs> go go make up the place where they have to go to get the jetpacks, and they'll have to steal them and then move on with it. Done. And uh, this is an important note for players. You can play a reluctant or naysaying character in a pulp adventure. You can be the person who, like, is kind of hard-boiled, who, you know, isn't bright and shiny and isn't the hero or is maybe an anti-hero. But make sure that your character is reluctant not that you are being a reluctant player. Separate yourself from the PC. So, you know, you will be a team player. You're going to go along with the plan or the idea. Your character can still whine about it or complain about it or, like, ridicule other people, but they're going to go along for the ride while they're ridiculing them because it's easier to ridicule everybody when you go along for the ride. Yeah, it's, like, it's awful lonely to be right at home. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It's also boring. (laughs) And then... You also want to make sure that you're consistently raising the stakes. Like, heroes are competent, but they also have to face challenges. So they can probably successfully sneak or fight their way into the secret base, right, to confront the villain. But when they arrive, like, they're going to flip a self-destruct timer and they're going to have 90 seconds to deal with it. Yeah, that's absolutely happening. And and this is this is sort of what I mean by, like, be okay with railroading. It doesn't matter how well you succeeded at the previous things that you did when you show up it's going to be a 90 second timer because that's cool right uh you can do things like threaten the hero's friends their homes their prized possessions i mean like you were saying you know you attack them at their base that that really hits home or like they can show back up to their base after a success and find out that you know someone has firebombed their base right um these are often the hero's weak points and oh no was my fiance inside at the time yeah that's uh the helpless significant other trope. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> which, I mean, used to be the helpless girlfriend trope. So hey, we're moving out of that at least. <laughs> but um, there, there's definitely like a lot of times like being a friend of one of these heroes means you don't have a whole lot of agency. Right. Right. So because it, it's frequently taken away by a villain. I mean, yeah. Historically, Jimmy Olsen exists to get kidnapped. Right. <laughs> and then like Lois Lane got cooler when she started being being like a person who can fly helicopters and shoot guns. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think the key here is to remember that greater danger in a pulp game shouldn't be a consequence of a poor roll or a failed roll. You don't want to fail forward into a cool scenario. Ending up in that cool scenario and getting in over your head and not really being sure how you're going to get out of this, 
is the reward. That's that's what you want your like big battles and, and climactic set pieces to be. And success shouldn't eliminate it by removing all of those challenges. Right. So if that sounds like you are going to end up playing a kind of schlocky 1940s story, that actually might be the case. Like, And that can be a really fun adventure. But I think modern sensibilities, there are still a lot of problems or potential caveats if you're sort of running pulp adventures right out of like, you know, the the dime store book. And I think the the first one for me is and it shows up in Eberron, right? Is like Eberron is a world of gray morality and it is both pulp but it is also noir, which we have referenced a little bit, but everything is gray and noir and you sort of put those things together and you get Eberron. But a a purely pulp tale with its black and white morality can end up feeling like it's lacking depth, especially after a while if you're playing a long campaign. Regardless of how the GM has structured the game, you can feel like you're being railroaded because you don't ever feel like you have a truly moral choice, mm. right? Like pulp adventures are not about moral dilemmas. It's not about like, you know, save your best friend or save the bus full of innocent people, right? Like you never have to make that choice as a pulp adventure, but you definitely have to save the bus full of innocent people and then save your friend. Mm-hmm. You get to do both, but like that isn't as like as engaging for players all the time to just have that like, it's just a fixed reality that like we're going to save them both because we're the good guys and that's how the world works. Right. So, I mean, don't run a straight pulp game, right? Mix in some other genres, like throw in a bit of noir, make, make your heroes pick a vice, um, make them struggle with things that don't necessarily affect like, you know, the, the action combat, right? Don't make it so that they're worse at fighting uh, or like solving puzzles or whatever it is, the thing that they're, they're, you know, the best in the world at, but make them struggle with some personal issues mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, just make them swashbuckling anti-heroes who like aren't particularly great people, but you know, do the, the thing that is good for the world in the end. Right. Like, I mean, that's a pirates game, right? Pirates right. are by definition, not good people. They're by definition, swashbuckling anti-heroes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or actually just villains. <laughs> right. <laughs> Depending on your pirate. <laughs> Um, but even terrible villains can have a touching or a tragic backstory. Um, it doesn't mean that they don't get their comeuppance. It just means that like there's a little more weight behind it. Yeah, it, the result is the same, right? You still kick your way into the secret lair, stop the self-destruct, like rescue the hostages, and then prob- maybe put a bullet between their eyes. But if you understand the terrible things that happened that were beyond their control that turned them into this villain who definitely deserves to get shot in the face... Like that makes the story much more interesting. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, your heroes actually might be like, wow, that's a tragic backstory and it's not really your fault. You did terrible things, but we're going to take you to jail and try to make you a better person. Uh, <laughs> okay, Joker. Right. I know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the that, that is one of those things. Like, no one is beyond redemption or, or almost no one is beyond redemption right so yeah if you're fighting hitler in the 30s you should just shoot hitler yeah i mean like you don't punish players for just like killing the villain right mm-hmm. but also like you can reward them for letting the villain live probably not escape but you know let them get some more just punishment rather than summary execution 
Yeah, if that's a thing that the players have expressed an interest in, right? Like, if you've got a paladin player or whatever, it might be that they're very interested in turning this person, like, away from darkness. It's a very anime trope that shows up a lot. Like, oh, we're fighting, we're fighting, we're fighting. Oh, no, I found out about your tragic backstory, and I use that as leverage to make you a decent person again. Mm -hmm. You're still going to jail. Yeah. Um, You also run into problems, like, historical problems with exoticization or demonization like since these all came from like the 30s and 40s and 50s like a, there's a lot of racial and gender stereotypes that just aren't cool mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i mean in all of these stories right like flash gordon has uh, ming the merciless uh, conan stories of like a ton of just random racism because burroughs sucked as a, as a human uh not burroughs um the other guy uh, lovecraft also but yeah pretty much all cowboy stories are extremely problematic i mean so obviously don't use the racial and gender stereotypes but you also need to keep context in mind when you are running this kind of story especially when it's grounded in the real world like it's really difficult to do a pulp cowboy story because the black and white morality means that you're probably fighting against natives and and even even if you're not you've got problems of like depiction although now i want to do a cowboy noir where everything's black and white with like <laughs> with like a an internal monologue going the entire time <laughs> so there i was busting a thousand head of cattle <laughs> <laughs> when in walks her two boots spurs latigo <laughs> on a steed so fine tall drink of water um <laughs> i had two anyway, shots in me <laughs> one was lead <laughs> yeah. The other, the other was, was also cheap whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was Howard. Howard wrote uh, Conan, not oh, Burroughs. Not Rice Burroughs. No. Oh, oh well. I think Burroughs sucked too. Also Howard. They all sucked. Yeah. The other thing, keep in mind, like locations get exoticized, mm-hmm. and a lot of times these are real places. Um. You know, like the travel to Cairo thing, like can't tell you how many times Cairo becomes described as like, or Egypt is the strange or mysterious or foreign land. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Or like the place that a character comes from, like we don't exoticize the person, but we exoticize where they're from. Right. So they're the, you know, the, the foreigner walks in or the mysterious stranger or whatever, like, like, I, I think that's better to keep those terms to describe like magical locations Mm -hmm. rather than like just distant locations, right? Like Skull Island, that's strange, mysterious, and foreign. Um, there's no people there. That helps. Right. It's all robots and flying monkeys. <laughs> Wait, what? I thought it's all kaiju. Did I watch the wrong one? <laughs> yeah, there's also kaiju. <laughs> um, yeah, obviously, like, harder darkness tropes, darkest Africa, like, don't do, don't use, don't even use the flavor of that. Um, you know, describing like the uh, strange and exotic smells like that. <laughs> those are offensive tropes too, that like are still really making their way into, into fantasy stories. I've seen them in some D and D products. Mm-hmm. Um, you mean, so everything in, ch- in Chult. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yep. Talk about Chult. <laughs> uh, so this is why sci-fi locations are so great. Magical fantasy locations. Like they're not, real people and just don't make them analogs of real places and real people. Right. Um, another caveat is character growth. Isn't really a huge 
driver for a lot of these uh, these stories, right? Like you expect that the protagonist will remain pretty constant throughout. Um, you're always reading the same character in every book. So like Indiana Jones does not change a whole lot through all the films. Mm. Like despite the fact that he nearly ruined the world by chasing the Ark of the Covenant, he has learned nothing and still continues to chase these <laughs> magical and powerful <laughs> artifacts. You think he'd have PTSD from watching a guy have his heart ripped out, but no. No, he's he's fine. <laughs> he still has the same daddy issues. Junior. But of course, you know, having a character change their mind or make some character growth does make for a much more compelling character. I think something that actually does this really well is the Incredibles movies. Like they're they're superheroes, sure, but they're like pretty grounded in reality. They're like pretty pulpy. Always someone is always kicking in a door. There's always some new crazy robot contraption. And if you look at the family, they start out relatively tropey. And then by the end of the first movie, they've they've actually like made a lot of decisions. They've added basically an additional character. They've got new problems. They interact in different ways. And then the next movie, you see how the, you see the repercussions of all of that. Mm-hmm. All right. So what are some games or systems that you think do pulp well? I think gumshoe games give you that baseline level of competency where you can just do a thing that you're good at and all you need to do is describe how you do it you know obviously they work well for like you know spy thrillers and and born identity type games Mm -hmm. but the the schlocky hero who definitely isn't going to screw anything up uh, and only really needs to spend resources to make a big interesting thing happen i think is kind of perfect for pulp yeah time watch is like a perfectly pulp gumshoe game Mm. Um, more so than like Night Black Agents or Delta Green or whatever, mm-hmm. but like, yeah, no, that one because you are time traveling heroes going to correct correct things, and like, your goal is to not screw up the time stream in the process. You never have any question that you're going to do the thing that you were sent to do. Um, I think another one that I, I, I do think would work well, um, even though like it is a lot more of a noir um, than necessarily a pulp, but like. If you play Blades in the Dark, you can get a lot of these pulp kind of aspects to it. Your characters don't necessarily change all that much over the course of it. They're vice-ridden and, you know, I think moodier characters than some pulp characters. But, like, your adventures, your missions in Blades in the Dark are, like, high-stakes, high-flying heists. They are the type of jobs that get named in film. <laughs> you know, like, oh, it's a lucky number Slevin. It's a, it's a Kansas City shuffle, you know? Like, that's the type of stuff that you're doing in a Blaze in the Dark game. I think that definitely fits into, like, a pulp kind of aesthetic. Yeah, and as a system, I think it's quite easy to reflavor into something that is uh, a little more uh, noble bright than grim dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, although uh, you could also use Blades in the Dark to just play the the villain and the villain's henchmen <laughs> fighting yeah. against bright heroes. A lot of like sort of pulp inspired settings are either played using fate or savage worlds. So like atomic robo is one of them. Um, and then like savage worlds just has like a whole bunch of like pulp inspired different, like small settings. Um, though I struggle with both of those systems because I never, I either feel like I'm too competent because I have built my character correctly or I'm completely incompetent because I didn't. Oh, interesting. And I will say that, you low level D and D is probably not the place to do this. Although I think a lot of people will want to use D and D for these kinds of stories. Mid to higher level, high level D and D is 
easier because you very quickly end up with much much more powerful characters. Yeah, I mean, that's why action points had to be added into the original Eberron. Right, was to, so you didn't to, just die immediately. Yeah, <laughs> to give low-level D&D characters sort of more agency. Right, a fighting chance. Right. <laughs> All right, do you hear that, Asian? Uh, it is me throwing henchmen willy-nilly from the base of this Zeppelin. I don't know where they're landing or if they're going to land on anybody, but I'm sure they won't. Well, that sound can mean only one thing. They've landed in the Character Creation Forge. So before we find out what they become... Let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sends Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord. We've actually had a handful of new people joining the Discord recently, so that's been fun. This week, Total Party Thrill is brought to you by Kobold Press. Check out the complete Kobold Guide to Game Design, 2nd Edition. It is the ultimate resource for gamers, game masters, and designers. Yeah, the first edition won an any uh, and lays out concepts, techniques, and advice for designing role-playing games and enhancing adventures. The 2nd Edition is bringing together essays from the original volume, many of which have been updated to reflect the changing design landscape. And there are a bunch of new essays by veteran designers. Yeah, so you'll have essays about world building, creating magic systems, conflict and compelling stories, as well as like what to expect when you work as a design professional. Low pay and long hours. Uh-huh. There's also conceptual chapters that examine what game design is and how good design creates the best games. There's some concrete examples to provide models to help you create well-rounded designs and exciting adventures. So get the complete Cobalt Guide to Game Design, second edition now at koboldpress.com. So this week in the Character Creation Forge, we're building the Melee Mage. Ishan, what is the Melee Mage? Pretty simple, Shane. It's a wizard who fights in melee. Who does hand stuff. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, we have wanted to do this for a while, but there's, I don't know, there's been the Bladesinger, which is <coughs> perfectly fine, but I also hate the uh, racial and Forgotten Realms restriction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so here we are with the advent of Eberron's Artificer, dropped right into our laps is uh, an int-based melee attacker. Actually, it doesn't even need to be melee. An int-based weapon user. Mm -hmm. All right. So what's the build? It is Battlesmith Artificer 3 War Magic Wizard 17. Okay. So artificers get medium armor, shields, and martial weapons. So you are a safe and competent fighter. Yeah. Battlesmith gives you martial weapons, which is great, and lets you attack with your intelligence modifier uh, also to damage as well as long as it's a magic weapon and it should always be a magic weapon uh, you will also get a steel defender which uh, will help by soaking up some of the damage for you as well as providing um, help when you attack i think a gnome works well here actually so that you get the plus two to intelligence and you can ride your steel defender oh not a gnome as a steel defender <laughs> you can, I think you can make your steel defender look like a mechanical gnome. That's what I would do. David the gnome, particularly. <laughs> uh, and added to your spell list is the spell Heroism, which gives you temp HP equal to your intelligence modifier uh, every single round. And it is a concentration spell, which will come up later. All right, you'll also get four infusions. I uh, will take enhanced defense and enhanced weapon. That gives you, you know, plus one. From Wizard, you get Arcane Deflection, which is an at-will mini-shield that you can use anytime you want and also works on saving throws. 
Mm -hmm. Tactical wit gives you uh, your intelligence modifier to initiative, which basically means you'll always be getting first so that you can smack with a giant weapon. You'll also get plus two to AC and saves while you're concentrating on a spell. So that heroism not only gives you temp HP, but also gives you this buff. Yeah, plus there are you know, tons of other uh, wizard spells that you can be concentrating on, things like blur, uh, if you want to be purely defensive. But you know, you, remember, you are a wizard first and foremost. You can do things like hold person. Okay, and <laughs> now I, I've cast hold person on three of you. I'm going to continue concentrating on that uh, so that everyone else can attack you or, you know, so I can attack you uh, and keep critting. Um, also, I have a plus two to AC and saving throws while I'm doing that. Right. Uh, and just by the way, I also have ninth level spells. So if things go south, I can always use, you know, wish. Yeah, you know, <laughs> wish I can cast any spell, eighth level or lower. That old chestnut. <laughs> All right, from leveling order, I think I would probably just start Battle Smith Artificer and then go straight uh, Wizard the rest of the way. You know, get your uh, get your melee attacking on early. Yeah. So, who is your melee mage, Ishan? My melee mage is the daughter of a famous and powerful fighter who wanted to follow in her mother's footsteps. Uh, always felt like uh, she wasn't quite living up to uh, the family name and the family reputation uh, because she was just, you know, too smart for her own good. And when you go to fighter college, usually it's uh, maybe not dummies, but people who are wiser than they are smart. They, mm-hmm. they do what they're told. They're good soldiers. And, you know, she just realized, I think this isn't quite the path for me. Wait a minute. I'll build something so that I can smash things and still cast my spells i look, will take look mom look look at look what i did <laughs> i made a gun hammer <laughs> are you proud of me are you proud yet <laughs> not yet hold on please i'm gonna make it magical wait hold on i'm gonna set it on fire this is awesome i don't care if you're proud of me anymore <laughs> all right what about your man image I will take the exact opposite of that because mm-hmm. uh, I, I love the like the Roy from the Order of the Stick mm-hmm. kind of character, right? Where uh, Roy being the fighter and like kind of the the moral center of the group, um, his parents were wizards and they were always disappointed that he decided to go to fighter college. Um, so I think my melee mage was also the child of wizards, um, would have preferred to go to fighter college. Um, and instead took all the classes in, in the wizard tower that allowed him to, you know, like learn how to fight uh, with a sword. And then, you know, um, picked up, I think Artificer was like kind of a minor in wizard school, you know. <laughs> uh, so my mine probably starts wizard uh, and then and then picks up uh, Artificer. But yeah, I think I think my melee mage is uh, following in the footsteps, you know, like following the uh the letter of the instructions from their parents, right. but perhaps not the spirit of what they intended. Right. Why Why am I being charged for a scroll of Tensor's transformation at the bookstore? Right. You need to explain. I think it's self-explanatory. <laughs> All right. Before we wrap up, we want to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? Uh, we're actually talking about teaching new players. That one got delayed a little bit for Eberron. 
Uh, and in the character creation force. That means we're building the headmaster. Well, that's it for episode 226 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name. But either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by Hero Forge, which offers fully customizable tabletop miniatures with dozens of fantasy races and thousands of parts to choose from. Yep, their easy-to-use design tool lets you build the perfect miniature online using a fully 3D, in-depth character creator right from your web browser. Yeah, it only takes me several hours, not because the interface is difficult, but because I am wishy-washy and cannot make up my mind. Because I, yeah, exactly. Like, I need to hit, like, randomize and then pick (laughs) the pieces and then put it back in, like, my main browser tab that I'm actually building my character in. Because sometimes, like, oh, I thought I wanted the grimoire, but now I really want that orb. (laughs) How can I be expected to decide if I haven't looked at every single option and there actually are thousands of parts to choose from? Exactly. (laughs) Once you do, of course, after you've spent the couple hours with analysis paralysis and indecision... HeroForge offers you the ability to have it printed for you using a variety of materials, including various grades of plastic and metal. That is literally metal. (laughs) Sounds awesome. So they're constantly expanding the catalog of customization options. They're adding new parts every week, and they're adding major features like additional races and custom posing on a regular basis. I haven't looked yet. I don't know if uh, all of the Eberron races are in there, but that will be interesting. Yeah, the other the other thing that's cool about it is every every option they have in there, like every racial option, has both male and female characters. Mm-hmm. So there are like notoriously difficult to find female minis, um, especially for fantasy stuff. So <laughs> and um, especially not posed in inappropriate ways. Yeah, exactly. Especially wearing you know just armor, right? <laughs> so <laughs> dressed for combat, <laughs> right? Um, so it's a great way to do that. And they are running a Black Friday Cyber Monday sale that goes from November 25th to December 2nd. So you can get $5 off one physical mini with the code RPGHOLIDAY. So visit HeroForge.com to start designing your custom mini today and check back often. And don't forget that code RPGHOLIDAY.